The Deseret Book Audio Library presents S. Michael Wilcox and a talk entitled Walking on Water When the Lord Asks the Impossible. This talk was recorded in front of a live audience. And now, Michael Wilcox. When I was little, I spent uh, many of my summers on a cattle ranch in northern Nevada. I had a wonderful uncle, Uncle Verlin, who taught me a, a lot of things. We raised cattle and we raised horses. But I think he was much better at raising boys. And he had a certain technique in raising boys that has helped me a great deal in life, and I'd like to start with that technique. He always assumed that we could do whatever he asked us to do. It didn't matter how impossible it seemed to us or how difficult it seemed to us. The assumption was if Uncle Verlin asked me to do that, I could do it. He anticipated we could do that. That helped us not to be hampered too much by doubt or fear. So for instance, my very first driving lesson, I guess I was about 13 or 14, he put me in the truck, gave me the key, and he said, this is the clutch, this is the brake, this is the gas. Here is first, here is second, here is third. You turn the key on, you put your foot on the clutch and foot on the brake. When you pull your foot off the brake, you put it on the gas and pull your foot off the clutch, and away we go. That was my first driving lesson. <laughs> we went driving down the road and he promptly fell asleep because my uncle could fall asleep anywhere, anytime. <laughs> We'd sometimes find him out on the range asleep, slumped over his horse. <laughs> he didn't, however, teach me how to downshift. And as we came towards a bridge, I was panicked. It was a very tight hair turn that went across the bridge over the river. I did make the turn, however, I didn't quite maneuver a large boulder on the other side of the bridge and crashed the truck into it. My uncle didn't say very much, he wasn't too critical, and the next day I was driving again. First time he put me on a horse, I was about five. The horse ran away with me. I scrambled off as fast as I could when he finally rode up and stopped it. But he threw me back on the horse, handed me the reins, and said, you control the horse, you make him do what you want to do and then he rode off. I had to stack hay. My lessons on stacking hay was keep the corners square and the sides perpendicular and make a nice point at the end. And on the haystack he put me. Maybe the most nervous time he ever made me was when he handed the reins of the team and told me to drive it down the canyon on a very narrow road that had a large drop off into the river. But he assumed that I could do it, and I assumed that since he told me I could do it, that I could do it. And I remember hugging the wall of the mountain, looking at that drop-off down the river, about 10 inches away from the outside wheel. This was the way he raised us. Now let me apply those lessons uh, of my uncle to uh, a little higher level and with issues much more critical. We believe in a Father in Heaven who is raising not just boys, but who is raising gods. And I think that uh, we should feel, uh, I should feel, towards my Father in Heaven in His attempt to exalt me, the same way I felt about my 
uncle. If God asks me to do it, I can do it, even though it may appear to be impossible. There is a wonderful story in the scripture that I turn to many times for inspiration. It's the time when Peter walked on water. It's his attitude that is so striking to me and that I think carries the lesson. This is what we read. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, now if you picture that, uh, the first time I went to Israel, we went out on the Sea of Galilee during the day. In future terms, I went out at night because this story takes place at night. And being on the Sea of Galilee at night is an interesting experience. All the pictures have Christ kind of lit up like a little light bulb walking on the sea. But I don't think he would have been lit up like a little light bulb. You can just picture the winds and the waves and this dark figure comes moving towards you across the surface of the water. Of course you would be frightened. When the disciples saw him, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now that's a wonderful attitude that I sense from Peter. I assume his motivation was, I desire to do everything my master does, even the impossible. I've often wondered what the Savior's face looked like when Peter said, if it's really you, ask me to walk on the water. Do you think that his uh, face was disappointed? Do you think he thought, oh, for heaven's sake, Peter, I guess you'll have to learn the hard way. I picture the Savior smiling, pleased at Peter's desire, that motivation, if my master does this, I want to do it too. I think he was pleased at his attitude, which I assume was this, if my master can do this, and he invites me to do it, if he bids or asks me to do it, I can do it. I can walk on water. I can do what no man has ever done before. I can do even the impossible. And that theme is such an important theme for us to learn here on earth that it is repeated a number of times in scripture. Let me give you another example. This is Nephi's conversation with his brothers when he was asked to build a boat. The brothers say, our brother is a fool, for he thinketh that he can build a ship. Yea, and he also thinketh that he can cross these great waters. They did not believe that I could build a ship, neither would they believe that I was instructed of the Lord. And they did rejoice over me, saying, We knew that you could not construct a ship, for we knew that you were lacking in judgment. Wherefore thou canst not accomplish so great a work. And then notice Nephi's response. And I said unto them, If God had commanded me to do all things, I could do them. If he should command me that I should say unto this water, Be thou earth, it should be earth. And if I should say it, it would be done. 
I think the formula that I try and put into my mind and when God seems to ask me to walk on water, that's an expression for doing the impossible even today, right? I think this is the thought process I try to go through. The Savior can do it. And because he can do it, I want to do it. Because I want to do everything he can do. I want to obey and love and forgive and pray just as he did. And if he asks me to do it, I can do it. Now, there are many times in our lives when it seems like the Lord asks us to walk on water. Or at least there are times when... I think, Lord, you might as well ask me to walk on water as to do that because I don't think I can do that. There are phrases in the scripture that are kind of walk on water phrases that are applicable to all of us. For instance, what manner of men ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am, and I say I want to, Lord. But to be exactly like you, that, that's impossible. But if you can do it, and you ask me to do it, I must be able to do it. Maybe the greatest of all, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. You might as well ask me to walk on water, Lord, as to ask me to be perfect. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. On and on we can pull phrases out of the scriptures that are very difficult there are other aspects of life. Let me give you a few that I have seen in my own life or in other people's lives. The Lord says, reject and resist every temptation, just as I did. Overcome crippling habits and addictions. Change your very character, your personality, your desires, your lifestyle, your very thought patterns. Conquer fear, master talents, fulfill a difficult, even an unwanted calling, consecrate all that you have, all that you ever will have, all of your time, all of your talents to me. Let go of traditions of past prejudice and hate. Forgive the unforgivable, love the unlovable, Maintain faith in a God of goodness in the face of vast inconsistencies, trials, and unfairness of life. Learn to trust a God who allows incredible suffering, allows men to be cruel to one another, to be inhumane. Endure crushing disappointment or betrayal. Rise from a suffocating, oppressive, or an abusive environment live chaste in an immoral world, mend broken, deeply wounded relationships, sacrifice your most precious things, rejoice, be of good cheer in the midst of pain and unfulfilled longings. Well, we could go on and on. I hope I hit everybody with something. You probably have your own walk on water moments of life, times when you want very badly to do what you feel God is encouraging you to do. What we see, he did, but feel that it simply is impossible. If he asks us to do it, 
the assumption is we can do it. We must believe we can do the things he asks us. I think it's interesting to ponder that the sign Peter specifically asked for, to know that it really was the Savior, this dark shape out there on the water, was the request to do what Christ himself was doing, the impossible. Almost as if Peter thought, no one else would ask me to do that. It must be my God. Now, now we may say, uh, but Peter failed. There's a little bit of comfort to me in that. He did fail. We go back to the story and we read, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Three words seem to stand out in that, or three ideas, little faith, afraid, and doubt. And so I ask myself, afraid of what or who? Doubted what or who? Little faith in what or who? Did he doubt the Savior? The invitation to come? Whether his desire was proper or not? Or did he doubt himself? His own ability to do it? I lean to that last one. So our challenge in life is to learn to have faith in ourselves, to conquer doubt, to conquer fear, that we can do what we're asked to do. Now, how do we do that? May I suggest uh, oh, a half a dozen things that I found in the scriptures that have been very helpful to me, that sometimes the Spirit whispers to me when I face those walk-on-water moments of life, desiring to do it, but doubting I can do it. Number one, remember the three L's. Remember the three L's. In the Doctrine and Covenants, there are three words. They all begin with the letter L. That's why I call them the three L's. Of what I'm supposed to do with the example of the Savior. Remember, it was the very example, the very image of Jesus walking across the surface of the Sea of Galilee that gave Peter the motivation and the desire to do it likewise. In section six of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Savior says, Fear not to do good, my sons, for whatsoever ye sow, that shall ye also reap. Therefore, fear not, little flock, do good. Perform with soberness the work which I have commanded you. And then the first L, look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not. It seems as if he's saying the very looking at him in every thought helps to conquer the doubt and the fear. Look unto me in every thought. In section 19, we get the other two L's. Speaking to Martin Harris, the Lord says, learn of me. And then the third L, listen to my words and walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you shall have peace in me.
That's a nice formula. Look unto me in every thought. Learn of me. Listen to my words. And then walk as I walked. So some examples. Maybe we're impatient with a child, huh? Trying to pick an easy one here. I just, I just don't have the patience to deal with this child. My granddaughter comes over. She wants to play My Little Pony. Now, she has every little pony that any color could imagine, right? In all kinds of little circuses and things they can do. And she likes Grandpa sometimes to play that with her. Maybe I'm impatient. I just can't handle. I want to sit down and forget. And I don't want to play Little Pony. <laughs> and the Spirit says, uh, look unto me in that thought, in your impatience, your irritation. Learn of me. Listen to my words. Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now walk in the meekness of my spirit. And somehow looking at that example, I have the ability to turn the news off and sit down and pull out the ponies. <laughs> Do you ever have a, a commandment that you have difficulty obeying? Maybe you don't want to obey it. And the Lord says, look unto me in that thought. Learn of me. Listen to my words. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now walk in the meekness of my spirit. And somehow with that example in mind, it is somewhat easier to obey. Maybe somebody has done something against you. We've been hurt. Uh, we are bitter, we are angry, we need to forgive. And I sometimes, and perhaps you sometimes say, Lord, to ask me to forgive under the circumstances, you might as well ask me to walk on water. I, I can't do it. And he says, look unto me in that thought, in that challenge. Learn of me, listen to my words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now walk in the meekness of my spirit. We could go on and on and on. Somewhere in the scriptures, I believe, there is an example for almost every challenge, every disappointment, every need. Somewhere in the Savior's life, I can look and learn and listen and then walk. So when you're asked to walk on water, remember the three L's. There's inspiration in it. A second thought. God will give us fleeces. Look for fleeces. Sometimes he'll give us fleeces even when we don't ask. Now probably most of you know the story of uh, Gideon. Before we look at that expression uh, that I call fleeces, let me set it up with another little story of the Savior in Mark. Sometimes we feel like 
the father whose son needed healing and he had asked the apostles to do it and they failed. Jesus wasn't there at the time and when he came the father approached the Savior with his son. Now he's had a blow to his faith, right? He's asked the disciples and they couldn't perform the necessary healing. And so he comes to the Savior in desperation and he says, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus kind of turns it around and repeats that if. Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Have you ever cried out that way? I believe, I know what you want me to do. I want to do it, but it just seems so hard, so impossible. I believe, help my unbelief. I need a fleece. I need something to encourage my belief. In Judges, we learn of a wonderful young man named Gideon. I really like Gideon because he's so human. He is hiding threshing wheat from the Midianites when the Lord addresses him and says uh, this, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. I can just see Gideon looking around, you're talking to me? <laughs> Mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? They're uh, raided by the Midianites constantly. And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of? And the Lord looked upon him and said, Notice the assumption that Gideon can do it. The Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And I can almost see the doubt in Gideon's face. A little pause there. And then the Lord adds, Have not I sent thee? I remember when my daughter was uh, preparing for her mission, she had worked with some students from Taiwan in a summer program and had listened to them speaking Chinese. And she came home and she said, you know, that has got to be the hardest language in the world to learn how to speak. That's the last language I hope I ever have to speak. So of course, when the mission call came, you know, we have to be careful when you say those things, lest the <laughs> Lord is listening. She was called a Taiwan. And she felt like uh, Gideon. I am not a mighty woman of speech ability. And we sat down, we looked at this little story, and I said to her, you have to look at it just like Gideon did. I think he would say to you, the Lord is with thee, have not I sent thee? And if I call you and I've sent you, I know you can do it. And she did. Gideon still doesn't feel too convinced. 
So he says, O oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Now the Lord asks him to do, the very first thing he asks Gideon to do is to tear down the altar of Baal. Now he's afraid to do it in the daylight. So he goes in the middle of the night to pull it down so nobody will see. Eventually he does gather an army to get ready to go against the Midianites, but when he sees the numbers, he doesn't feel like a mighty man of valor. And even though the Lord is with him and sent him, he needs a fleece. He needs confirmation. He needs strengthening. Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, the threshing floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece a bowl full of water. Now that should be enough, right? But sometimes the water walking experiences of our life, we, we may say, Lord, I, could I have two fleeces? And Gideon said unto God, let not thine anger be hot against me. Don't get upset. I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Now there's a difference between sign-seeking and fleece-asking. Sign-seeking says, I'm not going to do it unless you give me the sign. When we ask for fleeces, we want to do it. We intend to do it. We're going to do it. We have faith that he's asked us to do it. We just need encouragement. We just need a little help. And God is very good in granting that to us. Later on, uh, Gideon was told he had too many people. You know the story. He reduced them to 300. Now, he had already said, I'm not going to ask for any more fleeces. But he's got 300 men, and I think God knows, Gideon, would you like another fleece? And so without even asking, he says, go to the battle, but if you're afraid, go down to the host, and you'll hear something which will give you the courage you need. And he goes down and hears a man recount a dream that Gideon realizes will be fulfilled when he himself destroys the Midianite army. Let me give you an example in my own life of fleeces. A number of years ago, I was on the faculty at BYU, uh, on the religion faculty. I assumed I was going to be there forever. It's kind of an end-of-your-career move when you go to be on the religion faculty at BYU. Now, the year before they asked me to join the faculty, I had taught one year at the University of Utah Institute. I loved it. It was just a wonderful year. I loved the students. I loved the environment. Of all the places I had ever worked in the church education system, 
The Institute at the University of Utah always felt like home. I remember walking into the building the very first time and, and feeling this feels like home. But I went down to BYU and joined the faculty for about four years. I got a call one day from the placement uh, director at, of the church education system who said, Mike, there's an opening at the University of Utah Institute. We'd like to consider you taking it. Now, my first reaction as I'm listening on the phone is, well, no, I'm at BYU. I, I, I'm at the end of the road. I, why would I do that? But something inside of me said, don't answer just yet, think it over. So I said, could I have till Monday? This was a Friday to think about it. And he said, yes, you could have till Monday. Well, I prayed and fasted and did all the things we all always do when we're trying to make a big decision. And one uh, evening when I was praying that weekend, the Lord just very clearly gave me two words. He simply said, go home, go home. Now I knew what he meant. He was referring to that feeling I had when I first walked into the Institute at the University of Utah go home. It was as clear and solid an answer as any I had ever received. But it was such a difficult decision. And everybody was encouraging me to do just the opposite. So I went to the temple and I sat there in the chapel in the Jordan River Temple and I, I picked up the Bible, the scriptures, and I, I said, Lord, I need a fleece. I need to know this is really what I should do, what you want me to do. I, I need a fleece. And I did kind of a silly thing. We all do this. I know you've all done it too. You pick up your scriptures and you, you open them, right? And you anticipate that the answer is going to be right there where you open them. It's kind of like saying, uh, Father in heaven, give me an answer right now. And, and we open them up. I opened it up to the 16th chapter of Acts. And when I looked at it, I thought, well, this didn't work. Um, <clears throat> I had been teaching Acts, the life of Paul, and I knew that the 16th chapter of Acts was one of his missionary journeys. And I was just about to close it up. You know, sometimes if it doesn't work the first time, you say, I'll give you a second chance, Lord. <laughs> but my eye caught the very first verse on that page. And this is what I read. You tell me if in his kindness and graciousness and his mercy, knowing this was a difficult thing for me, that he gave me a fleece. I read this, speaking of Paul and his companions. After they were come to Mycia, they essayed to go into Bithynia. I even noticed that Bithynia had the letters B and Y in it. Probably not significant. But the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mycia, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. 
Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia. When I saw the word Philippi, I realized how powerful that fleece was because I knew that Philippi was one of Paul's favorite cities. They were so good to him. The epistle to the Philippians was, is one of the sweetest of all the epistles. It was God's way of saying the University of Utah will be your Philippi. He gave me a fleece. The final thought on fleeces. All of the truths and principles of the gospel, as taught in the scriptures, are delicately balanced. We must always remember that the human need to find reassurance or validation or courage to face our walking on water challenges is not an invitation to engage in subtle sign seeking, rather a desire to interpret God's will correctly, to advance in a manner he wishes, to increase confidence, not so much in him, nor in his commands, but in ourselves. We should not attempt to uncompromisingly dictate or demand of the Lord how, where, or when he provides the needed fleeces. Each situation will define those parameters. Having said that, Neither must we be afraid that our requests for a fleece will be seen as a lack of faith or a sign of weakness or that the Lord will perceive it as sign-seeking. We cannot reduce the gospel to simple formulas defining all behavior. Even a cursory reading of the scriptures reveals that, though we often try or earnestly wish that we could. The only hope I can offer in finding the right balance is this thought. When I hope for a fleece in my own life, if I can sincerely say to the Lord, Father, it is not a matter of seeing with the eyes before I move forward, nor one of comprehending with the mind, though understanding would be helpful, but one of feeling with the heart. I'm not trying to do an end run around faith, but there is comfort in feeling the water drip from my hands as I wring. Third thing that we think of sometimes, sometimes God gives us eagle's wings to mount up or to carry us over the surface of the water we're trying to walk upon. He increases our strength, our faith, our courage, our wisdom, our ability to forgive, our willpower, whatever it is that, that I, I need. And I'll take you to the place where that expression, he gives us eagle's wings, is from. I want to return for just a second to the story of Matthew. Again, we want to visualize Peter walking on that water. He did do it for a while, right? And then we read, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. Now, how deep do you picture him? I always like to picture things in the scriptures. Knee deep, waist deep, neck deep. Beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand. Now, I picture he didn't get 
too deep in the water before the Savior immediately reached out and caught him. And then they have the little conversation, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Do you picture he said that to him while Peter's halfway in the water? I don't picture it that way. I picture he lifted him up and Peter is standing next to him, strengthened by the Savior, upheld by the Savior, when that conversation took place. And then how do they get back to the ship? Because the next verse says, when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. That seems to suggest there was some kind of a little distance they had to cover. So did he drag him through the water, you know, hook his hand on the side of the boat and say, okay, climb back in? I don't picture it that way. I picture he caught him, lifted him up, and with the Savior by his side, strengthened by him, with the Savior holding his hand, he walked again on the water back to the ship. We do have promises all over the scriptures that the Savior will help us and God will help us. In Isaiah, the Lord says, I, the Lord, thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. And his help is wonderful. My favorite description of God in anywhere in Scripture is in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. It's, it's a poetic kind of a metaphorical image, but it's just a beautiful one. And it's the description that comes just before the eagle's wings verse. So let me set that up for you. Isaiah is trying to portray a picture of this powerful God we worship. And he says, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Can you just picture that? The Father we worship, the Savior, can just scoop up the oceans right in his hand. Just hold the Pacific Ocean right there in the palm. Can you picture that? Who meted out heaven with the span. To meet is to measure. The span was the tip of the thumb to the little finger. This God can encompass all the heavens between the thumb and the little finger and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. A measure was just a few gallons. He can hold all the dust of the earth in, in a little pot. And then this beautiful image, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Can you see the Lord having a little handheld balance scale there? And he's just going to put Mount Everest. I can tell you how much that weighs. I'll just put the mountains right there in that scale. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, had taught him? He doesn't need anybody to counsel or teach him. Behold, the nations are as the drop of a bucket, and are counted the small dust of the balance. There's China, just, just a little speck of dust on the balance that he'll blow away. Huh? Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. Can you see the horizon there? The circle of the horizon, the distance, and God sitting on the horizon, his feet hanging down over the edge of the earth. The inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Lift up your eyes on high. Now at night I go out, I look at the stars. 
Lift up your eyes on high. Behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their hosts by number? He calleth them all by name, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power. Not one faileth. He knows the names of all those stars. He holds all of them in their orbit. And this God, who holds the ocean in the palm of his hand and measures the heavens with a span of his thumb and little finger, who weighs mountains and scales and sits on the horizon, enveloped by the tent of the universe, knowing all the stars, this God you and I casually talked to this morning, didn't we? There's something wonderful about that. And it is this God who says, I will hold thy right hand, fear not, I will help thee. And after that description, Isaiah records these words from the Lord. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait means to hope or anticipate help from God. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Now, sometimes I look at that verse and think, maybe we should reverse it. It seems like it goes from highest to lowest. Wouldn't it be better if it went lowest to highest? So if I were writing it, uh, I, I would mess it up, I'm sure, but I would probably say, they shall walk and not faint. They shall run and not be weary. It takes more energy to run than walk, right? They shall mount up with wings as eagles. Walk, run, fly. I'll renew your strength. The more I think about it, though, maybe it's better that it starts from highest to lowest, flying, running, walking, as if the Lord is saying, I will more than renew your strength. I will more than give you the faith, the courage, the forgiveness, the willpower, whatever it is that you feel you need, I will renew your strength. That theme that God will increase what we have making it sufficient for whatever need we have is so important that once again we see it again and again and again in the scriptures. When he fed the 5,000, everybody was focused on the need 5,000. The Savior would have them focus on the five loaves that they did have. So often in my life I look at the 5,000 and not on the five. But the Savior asks them what they have, blesses it, and makes it sufficient. And then always beyond, always in these stories, you get more than you need. Because remember, they took up 12 baskets after everybody had eaten as much as they wanted and were filled. In 2 Kings, there's a woman who has a creditor who's going to take her two sons. And she goes to Elisha for help. And Elisha says to her, What hast thou in the house? God always asks us to bring what we have. Peter had a little faith, but he had to bring the little faith. He didn't have enough, but he had to bring what he had. 
What hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaiden hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. I don't have enough for the need. Elisha told her to borrow empty vessels of many kinds from all her neighbors and shut the door and then start pouring the oil out. She went from him and she shut the door upon her and upon her sons. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. And she came to Elisha and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt and live thou and thy children of the rest. The same idea. There was enough oil for her need and beyond. Time and time again, we read in the scriptures of people who have needs that are not sufficient. Christ asked them to bring what they have. He'll bless it, multiply it, make it sufficient for the need and always beyond. God will strengthen us. He'll give us eagle's wings so we can fly, not only run, not only walk, but fly. Mount a fourth thing that I think about. Sometimes the Spirit says to me when I'm trying to walk on water or do the impossible, let down the nets, let down the nets. This is another story involving Peter. Peter is listened to the Savior teach. The Savior is crowded on the Sea of Galilee by the shore and he's got into a little boat and pushed out a little and he's taught for a while and afterwards he turns to Peter and we read this. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught, for a catch. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And I put a pause right there. See, Peter's kind of thinking of the reasons why he shouldn't do something, why he can't do something. That's my first thought when I face a difficult thing. I sometimes think, well, I've already tried and I failed, so I can't do it. So I just put that pause. I, I, I see the Savior just looking at Peter, even smiling. And Peter says, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes in their net break. Sometimes we just have to nevertheless let down the nets. We just have to do it again. I fail the first time. I can sometimes think of very many reasons why I shouldn't try again, but I just, because he asks me, I let down the net. I may fail again and again and again, but each time I say, nevertheless, I will let down the net. And maybe the grace that Christ gives us is discovered in our ability to just keep trying. C.S. Lewis once said, I believe a million chances to do good will be given if they can be given. We just keep letting down the nets. What if Alma had not gone back to Ammonihah? I'm sure he could have thought up many good reasons why I shouldn't go back to Ammonihah. Been rejected, they spit upon me, they don't want to listen, there's nobody there. But he went back, nevertheless, he let down the nets. 
and he caught Amulek and Zeezrom. I remember once in the mission field, having just finished tracting an area, had gone back with his own leader for some reason I can't remember, and there was a little building with, oh, maybe a dozen apartments there. We had just tracted it. It's one of those missionary stories, right, where the Spirit says, track that building again. And, and you argue. He said, I, I, Master, we toiled all that building a few weeks ago and caught nothing, so. Pause. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net again in that building. Now, these are one of those, we call them last door stories, right? It wasn't the last door, actually. It was the second to the last door. And we did find a wonderful man who joined the church two weeks later with his wife. A few weeks later, his brother joined the church. His sister joined the church. I got a letter a few years ago, that family telling me how many of their children had been on missions, how many had been married in the temple, how many grandchildren were in the mission field at that time? What if I had not let down the nets again? Sometimes we just try and try and try again. A fifth thought. We must learn to see as we are seen and to know as we are known. That's a promise the scriptures give to us, that one day we will see as we are seen and know as we are known. I read that very, very positively. I sense that the Lord is saying, Mike, you don't know yourself as well as I do. You don't see yourself as I see you. And he always sees us at our best. If we go back to that same little story in Luke where they let down the nets, they beckoned to their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both ships, so they began to sink. There, there's a certain, a uh, little bit off the subject, but there's a certain truth in this story I really love, and, and it's this. God tends to ask us to leave when our nets are full. Have you ever noticed that? I thought, why did he do this miracle here, fill the nets? I, I, I think... It's to teach us that's one of the walk on water impossible things he sometimes asks of us, that we leave when the nets are full. It's when the boy has a scholarship that he goes on a mission, when the girl has the date with the coolest guy in the high school, and she's only 15 and a half, that she has to not go on it. It's when we have a house full of wonderful grandchildren that the Lord says, I'd like you in the mission field as a couple. Sometimes it's when we have everything to live for, that cancer or something else calls us home. God tends to call us when the nets are full. Well, when the nets are full, Simon Peter saw it. He's amazed. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter saw himself as a sinful man, not worthy of Christ's presence. How did Jesus see him? But Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. 
Now I like Matthew's version of that. Come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Peter saw himself as a sinful man. Jesus saw him as a fisher of men. We get the same story in Paul's calling. After the road to Damascus experience, Paul is waiting for Ananias to come and to give him back his sight. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prays. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. How did Ananias see Paul? He saw him as a persecuting problem. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Well, what was Paul? Persecuting problem or chosen vessel? God saw his potential. My favorite to uh, see as we are seen and know as we are known or learning to see ourselves at our best is the story of Thomas. Now, if I were to ask any group in this church, fill in the blank, blank Thomas, what are you going to say? You're going to say doubting Thomas. That's Thomas at his worst. And then I like to ask people, do you know of any other story about Thomas in the New Testament? And you know, I never get a hand, or rarely get a hand. There is another story about Thomas in the New Testament. We see a little different. It's when Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, and the sisters have sent for Jesus, and Jesus is intending to go back into Judea to Bethany. And the disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? And when they find out that Jesus truly is intent on returning to Bethany, even though they fear for his life, then said Thomas unto his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now, is the true Thomas doubting Thomas or devoted Thomas, sacrificing Thomas, willing to die for Jesus Thomas? I think uh, the real Thomas is Thomas at his best. The real Paul was the chosen vessel. The real Peter was the fisher of men. One day we will see as we are seen and know as we are known. A last thing that I think about when I have to try and walk on water, it's a realization that gives me courage to move forward. It's a question that Peter asked that I ask also. To whom shall we go? Now, there are times when we have to just realize there isn't any other choice. That expression comes from a story in the sixth chapter of John when Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's walked on water. He comes to the synagogue in Capernaum. The disciples are there, 
a lot of his followers are there, and he teaches the Bread of Life discourse. And in that discourse, he basically says to the Jewish people, I cannot be the kind of a God you want me to be. I did not come to solve all your physical problems. I came to solve spiritual problems. You must accept me as my Father wants me to be, not as you want me to be. And this is very difficult for many of the disciples, not just the curious, but the disciples. And we read this. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Now, all of us in life get the hard sayings. They come different times, different ways. We don't need to judge one another. Your hard saying may not be hard for me. Lots of hard sayings, things in life that God is asking us that we may feel is just too hard. How could he ask us of us? It's impossible. We can't do it. It's a hard saying. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You can just see that moment in the synagogue in Capernaum, silence as the disciples, not the twelve, but other followers slowly file out to leave him. He's asked of them too hard a thing. They can't do it. And then in a very poignant moment in the Savior's life, he turned to the twelve and said, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Sometimes in our life we just have to say, where, where would I go? I really don't have any choice. It may be a hard saying, but what do I do? And that idea is taught again and again in a number of different ways. In the Book of Mormon, the three days of darkness are meant to teach that very same truth. Notice that when Mormon describes those days, he doesn't emphasize that it's dark. He emphasizes that there's no light. We read, there could be no light. That's once he says it. Because of the darkness, neither candles, neither torches, neither could there be fire kindled with their fine and exceedingly dry wood, so that there could not be any light at all. That's twice. And there was not any light seen. That's three times. Neither fire nor glimmer, neither the sun nor the moon nor the stars. For so great were the mists of darkness which were upon the face of the land. And it came to pass that it did last for the space of three days that there was no light seen. That's four times. You get the impression that we're really supposed to understand there's no other source of light anywhere, no matter what. And out of that darkness, Christ introduces himself by saying, I am the light of the world. Now, there's a lot of I am statements that the Savior makes. I am the bread of life, and sometimes I say, uh, and I'm sure it's very nutritious bread, but there's other breads I'd like to eat, and so I'm going to go and eat that other bread. And he says, you don't understand. There is no other bread. I am the way, and your way is probably very good, Lord, and I'd love to walk it, but it's a hard way sometimes, and I'm going to walk this other way. And he says, you don't understand. There is no other way. I am the way. I am the light. 
I am the truth. In one of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes of a little exchange between a girl named Jill and the great lion Aslan, who represents the Savior in the Chronicles of Narnia. She is very thirsty as she walks through a forest. And she comes into a little clearing, sees a stream, breaks into the clearing, heading for the stream, and then sees this great lion sitting by it and freezes. She knew at once that the lion had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. The voice was not like a man's, it was deeper, wilder, stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. Oh, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. Now you can tell me what the lion's going to say. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his face could do that. There is no other way. To whom shall we go? There is no other light. And if I understand that, even though it's a hard saying, even though it's difficult, I can succeed. Sometimes it's helpful to occasionally ask ourselves if we're attempting to walk on the wrong sea or to walk on water the Savior has not asked us to walk on or to attempt the impossible of our own making. Just a warning we need occasionally. Often uh, we want to do the impossible, particularly as it relates to other people, to give life, to restore health, to create testimony, to take away somebody's pain, to fix a marriage or to create one for someone, to bring happiness. Often we have those things for our children and there's a certain guilt we lay upon ourselves, a certain anxiety because we so badly want to bring blessings to other people's life and we can't always do that. When those moments come, when I'm trying to do the impossible that maybe he hasn't asked me to do or I have no means or ability of doing, I have to remind myself of the silver and gold moments. In Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John go into the temple to pray and we read this experience. 
A certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, such as I have. I give unto thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There are so many times, particularly with my own children, my own situation, sometimes students, when I would love to supply for them what they need, what they want, to bring some happiness into their life, but I can't. And I have to say as Peter, silver and gold have I not. That doesn't mean I haven't something to give. Such as I have, give I unto thee. I can only give what I have. I'd love to provide a husband for a daughter, a baby for another daughter who would love very much to be a mother and is not able to have a child, health for a wife, testimony for a beloved friend, None of those things do I have power to do. But that doesn't mean I can't do something. There are times in our lives we must say, silver and gold have I none. Such as I have, I give unto you. I have learned uh, in my life that occasionally we demand of life what it really cannot give. There is a verse in the 101st section of the Doctrine and Covenants that I think I have fought all my life. I think I probably still fight it. Sometimes uh, I want total fulfillment in this world, uh, happiness in uh, every realm. And the Savior said to the saints in the midst of the Missouri persecutions, fear not even unto death, for in this world, your joy is not full, but in me your joy is full. I have fought that truth most of my life. Somehow I want joy to be full in this world. But that is an impossibility. That is a water we're not asked to walk on. To find total fulfillment, satisfaction in life. That doesn't mean there isn't joy in life. There is joy in life and happiness, and we're encouraged constantly to be of good cheer. But in the Savior, our joy is full, not in this world. Now, may I add one more L to the three L's by way of conclusion? What is the most powerful agent in replacing uh, doubt and fear? I believe that agent is love. At the end of Peter's life, he was asked to do a very difficult thing. The Savior, I think, took him aside, uh, had a little walk with him along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. 
And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Now he had asked Peter to follow him earlier in being a teacher. Now he's asking him to follow him even in his death, even in the manner of his death. Seems to be so fitting for Peter this, I want to do everything my master did, for it to end up that way, that he would let him do everything he did, even to the manner of his death. And how difficult that would have been for Peter to live his whole life, knowing that when the time finally came at the end of his life, not only would he die for the Savior, but he would be crucified just as Christ was. I think uh, Peter must have been a little bit shocked when that was stated to him. And once again, I put that little pause before that last follow me. He tells him he will die that way. Pause, let it sink in. And then those last two words, follow me. Follow me even in my death. Now what would give Peter the ability to do that? I think it's the conversation that just precedes that announcement. It's a very famous conversation. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith unto him again the second time, Simon son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. It is the love of the Lord and the love of the lambs that gives Peter the strength, the courage. If you love me, Peter, and I know that you do, then follow me. Even in this last great impossible walk on water thing I have asked of you, give your life as a final testimony. It is that same love that the Savior himself felt that enabled him to atone of all the impossible things that was ever done in the history of the world, of all the walk on water, difficult things. Uh, it would be the Savior's own sacrifice, a sacrifice we know of all the things in his life. He begged the Father, pleaded with the Father, that he would not have to go through. Yet he did it, and what was the power that enabled him to do that? It was his love. And John introduces in his gospel the last hours of the Savior's life with these words. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. It is love that gives us that power. We look unto him in every thought. We learn of him. We listen to his words. And we love. And then we can walk. An illustration maybe of the power of this in a 
kind of a simple way. When I was in the eighth grade, I entered a science fair project. I decided that I would test the intelligence of guinea pigs, rats, and mice. Find out who's smartest. In case you want to know, the rat is the smartest of the three. <laughs> so I built a big maze, and I trained him to go through, and I timed him, and I ran graphs and charts, and put them through it and timed them. And then I put little electric shocks in to see if they could relearn to go a different way. It was great fun. I actually won the school science fair project. It was amazing to me and had an opportunity to represent my grade. Uh, I won the grade in the regional science fair project. Well, a couple of weeks before that science fair was going to be held on the regional level, the mouse got sick. It was sneezing. Have you ever heard a mouse sneeze? <laughs> dreadful, dreadful sound if you're, if you're an eighth grader with a science fair project to defend. And so I begged my mother to let me bring the mouse into the house. And she said, because she hates mice, she said, all right, son, you bring him in, but you promise me that mouse will stay safe. I don't want it loose in the house. Oh, I promised. I brought the mouse into the house, put it in a shoebox, and locked it in the bathroom. Not a very smart thing to do. In the morning, there was this lovely little hole chewed at the bottom of the shoebox, and no mouse. Quietly, I'm sneaking around trying to find the mouse. I cannot find the mouse. And finally, had to go into where my mother was preparing breakfast and break the tragic news to her that we actually had a mouse loose in the house. I stayed home from school that day and the next, searching that house, my mother said, you will find that creature. I found everything anybody had ever lost since the pre-existence. <laughs> I just couldn't find the mouse. And for a few days, it would kind of be the, the scene of the flashing mouse, right? We'd be watching TV, and he'd go scurrying across the carpet behind the bookcase. And everyone would scream, and we'd try and get him, but we, we couldn't catch him. Finally, when there were just a few days before the science fair project, I noticed a different attitude in my mother. She began to realize what I knew from the beginning, that if I didn't have that mouse to run through the maze, my hopes of doing anything at the regional science fair were, were pretty much gone. Well, one night, uh, as she was sleeping, she had a bedspread that draped over the bed. The mouse climbed up the bedspread and right onto the pillow next to her, and she woke up and she could hear something over here on the pillow. Terrified, slowly she began to reach over to, reach over to try and turn on the light. She did get the light turned on, but as it came on, it f scared the mouse, and he ran right across her head into her hair. She sat bolt upright and threw the mouse out of her into the bed, into the middle of the bed. There he is, there he is, mouse, mouse, right in the middle of the bed, and it started to move towards the edge. Now, my mother has their thought, these thought processes. There is the mouse, ton, that, that mouse. Hate, hate mice. S needs mouse, mouse. 
And without even thinking, just reacting on her love for me, she reached out and scooped him up in her hands. Then she realized what she had done. <laughs> but rather than let it go, she began to shake her hands back and forth so the mouse couldn't stop and bite her and went screaming through the house, shaking her hands, yelling for me, trying to turn on lights with her elbow, shaking her hands. I'm deep asleep. I finally woke up and she said, Mike, I've got the mouse. I've got the mouse. I said, where is it? Where is it? Right here. She's shaking her hands. She dropped it on the bed. I got ready to pounce, but I didn't need to because it looked like it'd been on a three-week drunk, you know. <laughs> you could hardly walk straight. I did pick up the mouse, take him to the regional science fair. He never quite walked through the maze the same anymore. <laughs> you know, that's a very simple thing, but I realized from that time forth that uh, my mother really loved me and that her love for me enabled her to do something impossible for her, something extremely difficult. It is our love for the Savior and our love for one another that will enable us to do all those difficult, impossible, walk-on-water things. May I conclude with a scripture out of Matthew that for years and years, I read literally, and I always felt guilty. It's the move mountain verse, right? I've kind of since realized when I read the scriptures that a scripture isn't a whole lot of good if its application is so infinitesimal. There are so few people who are ever going to need enough faith to actually move a real live mountain that the promise is, like I say, not very relevant. So there must be more to it than that. If I read it on a figurative level, suddenly it comes with great power to me. These are the Savior's words. Verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, whatever it is in our life, whatever impossible thing we need to do, that we want to do, that the Savior's asked us to do, you shall say unto this mountain, that mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. May we doubt not, may we fear not, May we, like Peter, carry always in our heart the desire to do what our Master does and know that if he does it, no matter how difficult, no matter how impossible, if he does it and he asks us to do it, even be perfect, even be a God, we can do it. May we do that, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This concludes this presentation of Walking on Water, When the Lord Asks the Impossible by S. Michael Wilcox. Recorded and edited by Kenny Hodges. This has been a production of the Deseret Book Audio Library.
inside. 